Section 1 of Legends of Charlemagne This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA. Legends of Charlemagne by Thomas Bullfinch Introduction those who have investigated the origin of the romantic fables relating to charlemagne and his peers are of opinion that the deeds of charles martel and perhaps of other charleses have been blended in popular tradition with those properly belonging to charlemagne it was indeed a most momentous era and if our readers will have patience before entering on the perusal of the fabulous annals which we are about to lay before them to take a rapid survey of the real history of the times they will find it hardly less romantic than the tales of the poets in the century beginning from the year six hundred the countries bordering upon the native land of our saviour to the east and south had not yet received his religion arabia was the seat of an idolatrous religion resembling that of the ancient persians who worshipped the sun moon and stars in mecca in the year five seventy one mahomet was born and here at the age of forty he proclaimed himself the prophet of god in dignity as superior to christ as christ had been to moses having obtained by slow degrees a considerable number of disciples he resorted to arms to diffuse his religion the energy and zeal of his followers aided by the weakness of the neighboring nations enabled him and his successors to spread the sway of arabia and the religion of mahomet over the countries to the east as far as the indus northward over persia and asia minor westward over egypt and the southern shores of the mediterranean thence over the principal portion of spain all this was done within one hundred years from the hijira or flight of mahomet from mecca to medina which happened in the year six twenty two and is the era from which mahometans reckon time as we do from the birth of christ from spain the way was open for the saracens so the followers of mahomet were called into france the conquest of which if achieved would have been followed very probably by that of all the rest of europe and would have resulted in the banishment of christianity from the earth for christianity was not at that day universally professed even by those nations which we now regard as foremost in civilization great part of germany britain denmark and russia were still pagan or barbarous at that time there ruled in france though without the title of king the first of those illustrious charleses of whom we have spoken charles martel the grandfather of charlemagne the saracens of spain had made incursions into france in seven twelve and seven eighteen and had retired carrying with them a vast booty in seven twenty five on bessa who was then the saracen governor of spain 
crossed the Pyrenees with a numerous army and took by storm the strong town of Carcassonne. So great was the terror excited by this invasion that the country, for a wide extent, submitted to the conqueror, and a Mahometan governor for the province was appointed and installed at Narbonne. Anbessa, however, received a fatal wound in one of his engagements, and the Saracens, being thus checked from further advance, retired to Narbonne. In 732 the Saracens again invaded France under Abdal-Rahman, advanced rapidly to the banks of the Garonne, and laid siege to Bordeaux. The city was taken by assault and delivered up to the soldiery. The invaders still pressed forward and spread over the territories of Orléans, Auxerre, and Sens. Their advance parties were suddenly called in by their chief, who had received information of the rich abbey of St. Martin of Tours, and resolved to plunder and destroy it. Charles, during all this time, had done nothing to oppose the Saracens, for the reason that the portion of France over which their incursions had been made was not at that time under his dominion, but constituted an independent kingdom under the name of Aquitaine, of which Eude was king. But now Charles became convinced of the danger and prepared to encounter it. Abdal Rahman was advancing toward Tours, when intelligence of the approach of Charles at the head of an army of Franks compelled him to fall back upon Portiers in order to seize an advantageous field of battle. Charles Martel had called together his warriors from every part of his dominions, and at the head of such an army as had hardly ever been seen in France, crossed the Loire, probably at Orléans, and, being joined by the remains of the army of Aquitaine, came in sight of the Arabs in the month of October 732. The Saracens seemed to have been aware of the terrible enemy they were now to encounter, and for the first time these formidable conquerors hesitated. The two armies remained in presence during seven days before either ventured to begin the attack. But at length, the signal for battle was given by Abdal-Rahman, and the immense mass of the Saracen army rushed with fury upon the Franks. But the heavy line of the northern warriors remained like a rock, and the Saracens, during nearly the whole day, expended their strength in vain attempts to make any impression upon them. At length, about four o'clock in the afternoon, when Abdal-Rahman was preparing for a new and desperate attempt to break the line of the Franks, a terrible clamor was heard in the rear of the Saracens. It was King Eudek, who, with his Aquitanians, had attacked their camp, and a great part of the Saracen army rushed tumultuously from the field to protect their plunder. In this moment of confusion, the line of the Franks advanced, and sweeping the field before it, carried fearful slaughter amongst the enemy. Abdal-Rahman made desperate efforts to rally his troops, but when he himself, with the bravest of his officers, fell beneath the swords of the Christians, all order disappeared, and the remains of his army sought refuge in their immense camp, 
from which Ude and his Aquitanians had been repulsed. It was now late, and Charles, unwilling to risk an attack on the camp in the dark, withdrew his army, passed the night in the plain, expecting to renew the battle in the morning. Accordingly, when daylight came, the Franks drew up in order of battle, but no enemy appeared, and when at last they ventured to approach the Saracen camp, they found it empty. The invaders had taken advantage of the night to begin their retreat, and were already on their way back to Spain, leaving their immense plunder behind to fall into the hands of the Franks. This was the celebrated Battle of Tours, in which vast numbers of the Saracens were slain, and only fifteen hundred of the Franks. Charles received the surname of Martel, the Hammer, in consequence of this victory. The Saracens, notwithstanding this severe blow, continued to hold their ground in the south of France. But Pepin, the son of Charles Martel, who succeeded to his father's power and assumed the title of king, successively took from them the strong places they held, and in 759, by the capture of Narbonne, their capital, extinguished the remains of their power in France. Charlemagne, or Charles the Great, succeeded his father Pepin on the throne in the year 768. This prince, though the hero of numerous romantic legends, appears greater in history than in fiction. Whether we regard him as a warrior, or as a legislator, as a patron of learning, or as the civilizer of a barbarous nation, he is entitled to our warmest admiration. Such he is in history, but the romancers represent him as often weak and passionate, the victim of treacherous counsellors, and at the mercy of turbulent barons, on whose prowess he depends for the maintenance of his throne. The historical representation is doubtless the true one, for it is handed down in trustworthy records, and is confirmed by the events of the age. At the height of his power, the French Empire extended over what we now call France, Germany, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, and great part of Italy. In the year 800, Charlemagne, being in Rome, whither he had gone with a numerous army to protect the Pope, was crowned by the Pontiff, Emperor of the West. On Christmas Day, Charles entered the church of St. Peter, as if merely to take his part in the celebration of the Mass with the rest of the congregation. When he approached the altar, and stooped in the act of prayer, the Pope stepped forward and placed a crown of gold upon his head, and immediately the Roman people shouted, Life and victory to Charles the August, crowned by God, the great and pacific Emperor of the Romans. The Pope then prostrated himself before him and paid him reverence, according to the custom established in the times of the ancient emperors, and concluded the ceremony by anointing him with consecrated oil. 
Charlemagne's wars were chiefly against the pagan and barbarous people, who, under the name of Saxons, inhabited the countries now called Hanover and Holland. He also led expeditions against the Saracens of Spain, but his wars with the Saracens were not carried on, as the romances assert, in France, but on the soil of Spain. He entered Spain by the eastern Pyrenees, and made an easy conquest of Barcelona and Pampeluna. But Saragossa refused to open her gates to him, and Charles ended by negotiating and accepting a vast sum of gold as the price of his return over the Pyrenees. On his way back, he marched with his whole army through the gorges of the mountains by way of the valleys of Angui, Eno, and Roncevalles. The chief of this region had waited upon Charlemagne on his advance as a faithful vassal of the monarchy, but now on the return of the Franks he had called together all the wild mountaineers who acknowledged him as their chief, and he occupied the heights of the mountains under which the army had to pass. The main body of the troops met with no obstruction, and received no intimation of danger but the rear-guard, which was considerably behind and encumbered with its plunder, was overwhelmed by the mountaineers in the pass of Roncevalles and slain to a man. Some of the bravest of the Frankish chiefs perished on this occasion, among whom is mentioned Roland, or Orlando, governor of the marches, or frontier of Brittany. His name became famous in after-times, and the disaster of Roncevalles and death of Roland became eventually the most celebrated episode in the vast cycle of romance. Though after this there were hostile encounters between the armies of Charlemagne and the Saracens, they were of small account, and generally on the soil of Spain. Thus the historical foundation for the stories of the romancers is but scanty, unless we suppose the events of an earlier and of a later age to be incorporated with those of Charlemagne's own time. There is, however, a pretended history, which for a long time was admitted as authentic, and attributed to Turpin, Archbishop of Reims, a real personage of the time of Charlemagne. Its title is History of Charles the Great and Orlando. It is now unhesitatingly considered as a collection of popular traditions, produced by some credulous and unscrupulous monk, who thought to give dignity to his romance by ascribing its authorship to a well-known and eminent individual. It introduces its pretended author, Bishop Turpin, in this manner, quote, Turpin, Archbishop of Reims, the friend and secretary of Charles the Great, excellently skilled in sacred and profane literature, of a genius equally adapted to prose and verse, the advocate of the poor, beloved of God in his life and conversation, who often fought the Saracens hand to hand by the Emperor's side. He relates the acts of Charles the Great in one book, and flourished under Charles and his son Louis to the year of our Lord 830. 
The titles of some of Archbishop Turpin's chapters will show the nature of his history. They are these. Of the walls of Pampeluna, that fell of themselves. Of the war of the holy Facundus, where the spears grew. Certain of the Christians fixed their spears in the evening, erect in the ground before the castle, and found them in the morning covered with bark and branches. How the sun stood still for three days, and of the slaughter of four thousand Saracens. Turpin's history has perhaps been the source of the marvelous adventures which succeeding poets and romancers have accumulated around the names of Charlemagne and his paladins, or peers. But Ariosto and other Italian poets have drawn from different sources, and doubtless often from their own invention, numberless other stories which they attribute to the same heroes, not hesitating to quote as their authority the good Turpin, though his history contains no trace of them, and the more outrageous the improbability, or rather the impossibility of their narrations, the more attentive are they to cite the archbishop, generally adding their testimonial to his unquestionable veracity. The principal Italian poets who have sung the adventures of the peers of Charlemagne are Pulci, Boyardo, and Ariosto. The characters of Orlando, Rinaldo, Astolfo, Gano, and others are the same in all, though the adventures attributed to them are different. Boyardo tells us of the loves of Orlando, Ariosto of his disappointment and consequent madness, Pulci of his death. Ogier, the Dane, is a real personage. History agrees with romance in representing him as a powerful lord who, originally from Denmark and a pagan, embraced Christianity and took service under Charlemagne. He revolted from the emperor and was driven into exile. He afterwards led one of those bands of piratical northmen which ravaged France under the reigns of Charlemagne's degenerate successors. The description which an ancient chronicler gives of Charlemagne, as described by Ogier, is so picturesque that we are tempted to transcribe it. Charlemagne was advancing to the siege of Pavia. Didier, king of the Lombards, was in the city with Ogier, to whom he had given refuge. When they learned that the king was approaching, they mounted a high tower, whence they could see far and wide over the country. Quote, they first saw advancing engines of war, fit for the armies of Darius or Julius Caesar. There is Charlemagne, said Didier. No, said Ogier. The Lombard next saw a vast body of soldiers who filled all the plain. Certainly Charles advanced with that host, said the king. Not yet, replied Ogier. What hope for us, resumed the king, if he brings with him a greater host than that? At last Charles appeared, his head covered with an iron helmet, his hands with iron gloves, his breast and shoulders with a cuirass of iron, his left hand holding an iron lance, while his right hand grasped his sword. 
those who went before the monarch, those who marched at his side, and those who followed him all had similar arms. Iron covered the fields and the roads, iron points reflected the rays of the sun. This iron so hard was borne by a people whose hearts were harder still. The blaze of the weapons flashed terror into the streets of the city. End quote. This picture of Charlemagne in his military aspect would be incomplete without a corresponding one of his mood of peace. One of the greatest of modern historians, Monsieur Guizot, has compared the glory of Charlemagne to a brilliant meteor rising suddenly out of the darkness of barbarism to disappear no less suddenly into the darkness of feudalism. But the light of this meteor was not extinguished, and reviving civilization owed much that was permanently beneficial to the great emperor of the Franks. His ruling hand is seen in the legislation of his time, as well as in the administration of the laws. He encouraged learning, he upheld the clergy, who were the only peaceful and intellectual class, against the encroaching and turbulent barons. He was an affectionate father, and watched carefully over the education of his children, both sons and daughters. Of his encouragement of learning, we will give some particulars. He caused learned men to be brought from Italy and from other foreign countries to revive the public schools of France, which had been prostrated by the disorders of preceding times. He recompensed these learned men liberally, and kept some of them near himself, honoring them with his friendship. Of these the most celebrated is Alcuin, an Englishman, whose writings still remain, and prove him to have been both a learned and a wise man. With the assistance of Alcuin and others like him, he founded an academy or royal school which should have the direction of the studies of all the schools of the kingdom. Charlemagne himself was a member of this academy on equal terms with the rest. He attended its meetings and fulfilled all the duties of an academician. Each member took the name of some famous man of antiquity. Alcuin called himself Horace. Another took the name of Augustine, a third of Pindar. Charlemagne, who knew the Psalms by heart, and who had an ambition to be, according to his conception, a king after God's own heart, received from his brother academicians the name of David. Of the respect entertained for him by foreign nations, an interesting proof is afforded in the embassy sent to him by the Caliph of the Arabians, the celebrated Harun al-Rashid, a prince in character and conduct not unlike to Charlemagne. The ambassadors brought with them, besides other rich presents, a clock, the first that was seen in Europe which excited universal admiration. It had the form of a twelve-sided edifice with twelve doors. These doors formed niches, in each of which was a little statue representing one of the hours. At the striking of the hour, the doors, one for each stroke, 
was seen to open and from the doors to issue as many of the little statues which following one another marched gravely round the tower the motion of the clock was caused by water and the striking was effected by balls of brass equal to the number of the hours which fell upon a symbol of the same metal the number falling being determined by the discharge of the water which as it sunk in the vessel allowed their escape charlemagne was succeeded by his son louis a well-intentioned but feeble prince in whose reign the fabric reared by charles began rapidly to crumble louis was followed successively by two charleses incapable princes whose weak and often tyrannical conduct is no doubt the source of incidents of that character ascribed in the romances to charlemagne the lawless and disobedient deportment of charles's paladins instances of which are so frequent in the romantic legends was also a trait of the declining empire but not that of charlemagne end of introduction Recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA.